Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Schollenberger. Jeff Schollenberger is Senior Lecturer at New York University's Expository Writing Program, as well as creator of the Outsider Theory blog and newly launched Outsider Theory Podcast. We talk about his Outsider Theory project, conspiracy and elite paranoia, our schizophrenizing media complex, Baudrillard and hyperreality, scapegoating, Marcuse's concept of repressive tolerance, and touching the third rails of American politics. Before we get into that, I have some announcements for the show. I've been hesitant to push the Patreon page because I was undecided about the best way to package a valuable offering that would be worth your support. And also, I was looking at different platforms for creators and potential models. I've settled on something that I believe will keep the show as broadly accessible as possible while giving valuable benefits to supporters. And so, beginning with the next episode, Patreon supporters at any level will have early access to new interviews three days in advance of the general public. Additionally, some of the direct addresses and audio essays will be available for Patreon subscribers only because they often deal with topics that are more nuanced and less palatable to a general audience. Lastly, every Agora Politics patron will receive an invitation to join our exclusive philosophical community of like-minded fans and listeners. People who are intellectually curious, mentally flexible, and serious about upgrading our theories of politics. I hope this arrangement strikes a good balance between the open and accessible ethos of the show and the need to provide something more substantial and valuable for supporters. With that out of the way, I give you my conversation with Jeff Schollenberger. I'm here with Jeff Schulenberger. Jeff is uh, the founder of uh, the Outsider Theory blog, as well as a senior lecturer at NYU's expository writing program. Uh, Jeff, welcome to the welcome to the Agora Politics podcast. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. It's great. It's great to have you on. I'm I'm really uh, excited to get into some of the things that uh, I think we're going to talk about today. So. Right, right off the bat, uh, I want you to tell me about this outsider theory project that you're doing uh, in your in your in your spare time. Uh, what it means to you, and uh, what what you think uh, is going on with it. Sure. So it really um, it it became a a way for me to bring together a couple of areas of interest that I maybe previously understood as as separate um, areas of curiosity. Mm-hmm. But that it turns out that outsider theory is sort of a useful term for all of them. And so they, they may still be somewhat separate, but um, at the same time, they they all kind of belong under that heading. So the first one is uh, conspiracy theory, basically, as as it's usually called. So it's, uh, you know, sort of unauthorized intellectual activity that often gets put under that heading. Um and, you know, the sort of quality of that, not unlike the quality of sort of legitimate academic theory, you know, varies considerably. But, you know, there is there is a good amount of um, production in there that is at least highly fascinating and deserves uh, careful attention and and interest. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, a conspiracy theory is a term that was really devised as a way of, of kind of dismissing or being able to to um, disqualify a lot of that sort of thought. And, you know, that's not to say that, I mean, clearly some of what gets put under that heading probably should be, but um, I still, I still want to have a more curious um, attitude towards that kind of stuff and maybe we can get into why i think that later on but so that's that's one element um another element is i've been very interested in how basically this body that of of you know writing and thinking that's often called theory or french theory uh you know which is essentially the the kind of um you know structuralist to post-structuralist um sort of uh, efflorescence of, of kind of radical and quite um, original and unique um, thinking that, that came out of France in the 60s and 70s, particularly, and then was gradually kind of, I mean, if you read Francois Cousset's book, French Theory, it's, it's kind of about how that, you know, that was not really a unified thing until it came to the United States and kind of became understood as that, right? In its original context, it was not really understood as as all being part of the same thing. But what I'm interested in is how that um, how that kind of body of work is uh, is is sort of transmitted into other realms and particularly non-academic realms and how it um, how it kind of mutates and and evolves um, when it when it sort of escapes the confines of the academy in particular. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, so you can sort of see how those two are potentially convergent because, um, you know, in some cases, I think there is a kind of paranoid element of a lot of that kind of theory. And so it there, there's a kind of interesting way that it can converge with the conspiratorial um, under the heading of a kind of popularized hermeneutic of suspicion. Mm-hmm. And then... The third element really comes out of one of the French theorists I've been most engaged with, who's René Girard and his theory of the scapegoat okay. as this figure who is the outsider and who um, who in some way helps constitute uh, a community by standing outside of it and and sort of being um, being expelled or marginalized by it. But in that sense, becomes the kind of linchpin by which it is its its unity is achieved. So those are really the three kind of facets of the project, and they all kind of overlap and interact with each other. But um, that's that's basically the the sort of somewhat eclectic but thematically unified um, project. Okay, so uh, those are great, and I'd love to get into each of those points. But um, for right now, I guess one of the higher level questions that I have for you, just personally, is uh, you know, obviously there's this sort of I guess, general theory of the outside, right? Marginalized ideas, marginalized figures, people who are a little bit too um, close to the edge in their thinking, or uh, even dangerous, you might say, in various ways, uh, or dangerous ideas as in conspiracy theories, et cetera. Um, But you yourself are someone who's decidedly on the inside uh, in your capacity as a lecturer at NYU. So how do you view um, your, you know, I guess, decision to pursue that endeavor and do you think that it that it actually is something that's outside the confines of normal academic life? That's a good question. So my position at NYU is such that I'm I'm teaching my my evaluate you know the, my sort of evaluation and promotion. I mean I'm on multi-year contracts and I'm I am full time, but is not not based on what I write. It's really based on my teaching and sort of service to the university. 
And so as a result of that, I have a certain amount of freedom because I'm not expected to publish any particular kind of thing. Like there's there's sort of a value placed on just being active as a writer, as an intellectual, but I'm not really evaluated on that. And in a sense, the university doesn't really care what exactly I write um, or who I write it for or anything like that. So that that's a certain amount of freedom I have through that relative marginality, which you know, the cost of which is like, I'm not getting, I'm not getting paid as well. I don't have the same level of job security, although I'm better off than the average adjunct. Um, but, but it does afford a certain amount of freedom to not really care about um, academic professionalization and to, you know, just do things that are a bit weirder and maybe not, wouldn't be all that, um, wouldn't be all that valued, but um, that, you know, in a sense, allow me to pursue things that are more interesting to me and to be honest, you know, have a, have a much wider readership than I did. I mean, I have a much wider readership for my blog than I ever did for any of the sort of peer reviewed articles that I wrote. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, you know, the, the value you get out of, out of engaging in the, the academic publication game is, is a kind of, um, is, is one where you're, you're essentially, um, accumulating, uh, sort of markers of prestige, but you're not, you know, the, the, the sort of communities, or I wouldn't even call them that, the, the sort of um, subgroups and specializations are so siloed that, you know, you, just very few people read anything that you write for those kind of publications. <laughs> and, you know, you can go to the conferences and things like that. But to me, it's a lot more interesting to just write weird stuff that like all sorts of weirdos on the internet find and that, you know, they get me into conversations with like people who have nothing in common with me professionally or you know, in terms of my training and, but, but who do share certain of these interests, like that's a great deal more interesting to me and sort of intellectually stimulating than, than just kind of going to conferences where I'm like presenting to the sort of 25 people who like roughly fall into the same area of specialization as me. Like that's just not really that interesting to me anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so your work, a lot of your work and your writing focuses on various dynamics, subcommunities, cultures that appear on the internet. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting about that is that I think a lot of the material um, and the popularization of ideas that were once sort of out of bounds or rather obscure or marginalized in various ways uh, is a result of their proliferation on the internet. How do you see the internet tied into sort of this what I view as like this new age of blossoming intellectualism and sort of ideas. It's almost like they they escaped the academy, right? Like they weren't supposed to get mm. out and now they're out kind of spreading around. Um, and I view that, you know, in terms of the proliferation of different uh, political ideologies, the fact that no one can seem to have a common ground to talk about, you know, values or, or even um, political identification anymore because of the fact that there's just so many, um, groups and subgroups and different, you know, factions that, that arise. Um, I view all of that as a, a sort of, um, a sort of revealed preferences type situation. That's a result mm -hmm. of the expansion of knowledge created by the internet. How do you think about the internet in terms of the role in your, your project? Yeah. I mean, I would say that that's, you know, it, it was a huge, um, thing for me to discover just that I could go directly to the general public online and just discover a, a critical mass of people who were interested in the kind of stuff I was interested in. So mm. definitely that that played a pivotal role in, in, you know, shifting my emphasis in terms of what I write and who I write for. 
So yeah, it's it's a huge um, it's a huge factor. I think the disadvantages of it are that I mean a couple that that relate to things that so I'm you know I'm I've started an interview podcast as well. That's out of my that's a spinoff of my blog that's recently launched, mm-hmm. so people can check that out. It's you know you find it on the the same website as the blog. But um, I've interviewed a couple people who kind of had some interesting insights related to this. Um, the, those episodes are not yet released, but um, so one of them was about. Um, was about fashion was talking to somebody who um who thinks about about how fashion is shaped by this kind of subcultural like niche sorting that takes place on social media platforms so you have all the different core you know you have cottage core and you have whatever core um and and how there is a kind of um you know so it seems like one of the effects of these platforms is it creates those kind of sorting effects and you see that in in style and fashion, right? Where mm. people are constantly trying to differentiate themselves. And so you end up with this, you know, this kind of um, sort of exponential proliferation of different niches. And so the the bad thing about that is that it, you know, it it creates all of these niches of people who are kind of defined by like hating other people. <laughs> and yeah, it creates I feel a like... lot of, of it, <laughs> It creates, um, you know, a lot of obstacles, at least, you know, whatever in the in the context of this kind of fashion, you know, people just like inventing these new styles and things like that. Maybe, you know, I, I think my my interlocutor for that thought there was something quite negative about that. Um, I think it's even worse in the realm of ideas um, because it, it it means that just these these um these ways that people, you know, try to, um, you know, in the attention economy kind of project some sort of distinct identity, just become this basis of a lot of sort of trivial conflict and feuds and fighting. So I think that's that's an aspect of it that that is maybe the the negative side of it. Mm. Um, another aspect, which is kind of both good and bad, is that, you know, I another person I interviewed, um, you know, is one of the like theorygram people who produces these theory memes. So there is this kind of, you know, quite super sort of overtly superficial engagement with theory, which mm. I'm interested in as a phenomenon. But okay. it does, you know, it, it does um, maybe make sometimes the possibility of dialogue a bit shallow um, in terms of what's what's possible, um, f- f- you know, d- despite the sort of seeming traction that a lot of these ideas have, the way in which they're consumed is this, this hyper-accelerated and hyper-simplified kind of um, meme form. Okay. So I don't know. So, th- those are two things that are maybe like the darker side of it. In terms of this relationship between ideas and theory and uh, that is, you know, continental theory or French theory, whatever you want to call it. Um, and, uh, this idea of conspiracy, uh, it sounds like, you know, from both the comments you made so far, uh, today, as well as other, um, I guess, um, espousings I've heard from you uh, online, um, that, you know, when, when you're talking about this sort of surface level, um, reproduction of, uh, of theory or flirt flirtation with theory or, Oftentimes it's presented as a kind of like exposition of it. Um, do you think that there's sort of conspiratorial thinking with regard to the um, proliferation of these academic ideas? Or were you talking more about conspiratorial thinking internal to the logic of those theories? 
or both? I mean, I would say, you know, this um, this term hermeneutic of suspicion is the the one I would use here. Part of what I would say is that there's a kind of, and I'm yeah, I'm writing something that's related to this. Uh, there, so to be very schematic, you know, the, this term hermeneutic of suspicion comes from Paul Ricoeur, um, Paul Ricoeur's Freud and philosophy, and you know, it describes this kind of sensibility that is associated with uh, Marx, Freud, and you know, to some extent. Um, Darwin would probably fall under that category too. And the idea of it is is that, you know, to oversimplify a lot, that that there's there's a surface level of reality that has to be treated with with distrust. And then, you know, what the task of analysis is to kind of reach beneath that and find some kind of deep mover or some some structure that that accounts for the the working of the surface level of reality. So anyway. Um, the hermeneutic of suspicion is kind of the 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 sort of um, the point from which all of the French theory departs to some extent or another, right? Although although you could argue that in some forms it it actually became a sort of critique of that surface and depth structure. But in any case, you know, the, to some extent or another, it's it's all coming out of Freud and Marx, right? And so what you have is um, is that uh, sort of way that that intellectual life is infused with that particular sensibility. And then kind of simultaneously with that, you have the rise of sort of popular conspiracy culture, which I would say is is kind of a and I would trace both of these ultimately to a sort of mediatic, like the the sort of intuitiveness and popularity of this mode of thinking, I, I understand in terms of the kind of mediatic regime of the 20th century. I'm sort of influenced by um, Friedrich Kittler um, in, in his work on this. But um, basically, so you have the highbrow version, let's say, and then you have the sort of lowbrow version, right? The highbrow version is theory. The lowbrow version is conspiracy theory. Um, and then I think sort of what you have is uh, on the highbrow end, you, you have a kind of falling into disrepute of of the the sort of hermeneutic of suspicion. So you have a lot of this idea of post-critique starting around the beginning of the 20th century. And that seems to be informed by a recognition that the hermeneutic of suspicion is now the dominant frame of the entire culture, right? It's no longer this thing that distinguishes you as an intellectual who sees through what the sort of, you know, dupes and rubes of the general populace can't see, right? In fact, it's the dupes and rubes who are who are themselves the most suspicious, right? So you have a, a, a sort of watershed essay by Bruno Latour called Why Has Critique Run Out of Steam? And this is really the parting point of it, right? What he says is essentially that... Um, the problem, you know, he and all of his sort of French theory contemporaries were, were trained to believe that what you needed to do was to um, to critique the sort of naive surface level understanding of reality that the sort of average citizen had imbibed from the sort of mediatic brainwashing machine, right, and, and get past that. But his position writing in about 2004 is that, in fact, the suspicious idea that um, all of that is is this 
pr- this rank propaganda that needs to be um, that need that we need to look past is actually now the the sort of standard view of the average person, right? And so he describes living in a, a village in France. And his sort of, you know, neighbor who like never did, didn't, you know, go to college is like making fun of him for being so naive as to believe that the the 9-11 attacks really happened as the government says. Right. Mm. And so I think there's a kind of revert, you know, so so there's this the the hermeneutic of suspicion is so becomes so popularized and so set into all dimensions of popular culture, meme space etc left and right doesn't matter that in fact there's a kind of withdrawal of the the intellectuals from that and an attempt to um and you know to me the most you know the clearest example of this now is covid right so what do we have well we have basically um these you know random anons doing this kind of folk foucauldian critique of biopolitics right (laughs) And then we have these um, then we have these sort of blue check academics being like, you know, believe in science, uh, et cetera. So it's a you know, it's it's a remarkable um, transformation. And I think the covid moment has been a real revelatory one for this this process. So so that's pretty much how I see it. Probably oversimplifying a little bit. But yeah, so I I agree. I definitely agree with you there that. COVID blew the doors wide open on, uh, I would say, our like cascading epistemological crises that we're in at the moment mm-hmm. um, and how they're playing out. And the fact that, uh, yeah, like this, there's this weird thing going on between individuals and institutions. And the institutions, I think, for a long time had thought, uh, largely because of the structure, like the broadcast structure of the 20th century, that they would just be in charge forever and that there's no way out. Um, now it's looking like right now to me, and this is all my opinion, uh, that, uh, the internet may, may be an escape route, maybe a way to fundamentally transform these, uh, the organization of, of society and the proliferation of information, uh, in a way that gives more power back to, um, everyday people. Uh, that being in away from these institutions. Now, obviously, new institutions are going to arise who are going to replace the incumbents. Uh, and so ultimately, there will be a reconsolidation. But I am hoping that some of these technologies, you know, cryptocurrency, for example, um, uh, smart contracts, etc., cetera, uh, will provide a gateway to at least lock in some of that new, uh, a new freedom and a new kind of, um, you know, status and prestige. I mean, I don't know how you feel about these, these anons who are, you know, <laughs> Talking about bio biopower uh, on um, uh, you know on the internet or, or or whatever, but um in my opinion, like I almost have you know, and it's hard to tell. You have to be very discerning with this, but I have I almost have more respect for some of the anons that I follow, um and view them as I don't know about more authoritative, but more credible on certain things, uh than I would some of the mainstream sources, just because I know for a fact that those mainstream sources have lied to me so many times. Um, and so there's this, uh, l- like, slow, um, I mean, they're just, like, burning up their credibility, I would say. Um, and especially during the COVID crisis, there's been, you know, numerous examples from all kinds of organizations. We don't need to name them here. Uh, but, 
there there is this weird thing happening and the question for me is and i think a lot of other people are asking this as well people who are focusing on like you know what they're calling the sense making crisis the show is sort of related to that uh it are all saying like okay well we're in this new landscape and there's a loss of credibility in the known institutional actors uh, and there's these new non-institutional actors who are coming up who seem to be more credible or at least seem to have some good ideas. Uh, and But the problem is, of course, you can't trust them. <laughs> there's no way for you to discern whether or not they're actually trustworthy or whether they know exactly what they're talking about, of course. And, and, and the other problem with being on the Internet and, and just reading anything is that uh, ultimately, you know, to discern these things for yourself, you have to sort of become an expert on everything or, you know, an impossible task. And so uh, for me, it's been really interesting to just see how this has continued to transform. And I'm very curious about how it's going to play out. But I wanted to get into this aspect of conspiracies because conspiracy is actually something that I've purposely stayed away from on the show um, in terms of like not talking about not having people who like to talk about conspiracies on. I mean, I haven't really like selected them out or anything. It's just that I haven't um, taken the time to use this platform as as an opportunity to talk about conspiracies. Um, and so I'm actually very interested in your take on the proliferation of conspiracies. It sounded to me like this, um, you know, the ubiquitousness of the hermeneutics of suspicion that you're talking about uh, is something like the discovery of the unconscious. Right. Or the discovery that human of, of irrationality. Um, and, you know, you see this sort of in like the post-rationalist communities. Um, uh, people like Robin Hanson talk a lot about, you know, how humans aren't really that rational and so forth. And so I feel like the the move from modernism into postmodernism is sort of a confrontation with this fact of life that, you know, we're not quite as rational as we thought we were. Uh, and in fact, a lot of the, the ways in which we act are um unclear or even unknown to us and we only sort of discover them after the fact or even or you could even argue we don't even discover them eventually we sort of just rationalize after the fact but either way it's this sort of feeling like uh like we really lost our grounding in being able to make sense of the world and even to to perceive it as, at its most basic level to perceive reality as it is now i would argue um that you know i i think there are a lot of like physicists and mathematicians who would say, well, of course, we don't really see uh, reality for, for what it actually is. Uh, we have these evolved structures that are designed to see reality, to point us towards certain qualities of the environment, certain, um, we have a certain orientation. And because we, we came out of a particular niche, we're sort of, our perceptual structures themselves are adapted to this particular niche. Um, but how, how do you, how do you think about like the proliferation of conspiracy? I saw I saw a video with Jordan Greenhall a few days ago where he was talking about this exact subject, conspiracy. And he pointed out very rightly that, well, you know, a surprise birthday party is a conspiracy, right? <laughs> like something as innocuous as that is, is actually a conspiracy. You're, you're getting together as a group of people and you're planning something out in secret. And, you know, other people or maybe no one else knows about it until it actually comes to fruition. Uh and so it, it, one of the things that I find really interesting is that there's this whole war on conspiracy theories right now. You know, the United States, uh, since the Capitol attacks, has now declared a war, you know, a war on domestic terrorism. 
which is part of like the the war on misinformation or the war on conspiracy theories. Um, and I'm expecting this kind of environment to increasingly intensify uh, over the next decade. I don't really know how it's all going to play out, uh, and I'm not going to speculate. <laughs> but uh, how do you think about conspiracy? Do you think of it as like a serious threat? Um, are there particular conspiracies that you think are overly problematic? And how do you think about the institutional response uh, by the powers that be to this sort of ubiquitous conspiracy thinking? So a couple of things I'm influenced by in my thinking on this. One would be uh, Jesse Walker's United States of Paranoia, which is a, a really excellent book. Um, the, the best one, I would say, about the sort of history of conspiracy theory in the United States. And one of the points he makes is that if you look at what we if you look just honestly at what we might call conspiratorial thinking, which would, you know, be, you know, imagining a surprise birthday party, but, you know, on on some kind of grand scale, <laughs> the you know, the way that it has largely been represented and framed is that this is a um, that this is largely a kind of folk activity that takes place among. And, you know, I, I would say even my account of it a little while ago um, sort of bought into this framing um, that, that takes place among the sort of uneducated, um, you know, people who don't who don't have access to the, the right sort of theory. Mm -hmm. um, and Jesse Walker basically shows systematically throughout U.S. history that there is always a an, a sort of equal and opposite um, realm of conspiratorial thinking that is precisely as conspiratorial as, you know, for example, what the U.S. government is now um, identifying as 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 so dangerous that takes place among the governing elites, right? That the governing elites themselves are always as paranoid as the people they're trying to regulate control and, and ensure that they don't get too unruly. Mm -hmm. And so he goes back really to colonial America, right, and shows that there's a, a, I mean, you know, you can go all the way back to say witch hunts and things like that but um you know which were orchestrated by elites right they were orchestrated by the governing elites of of the colonies so but you know he shows this throughout history right and then an interesting twist is that concern about conspiracy theory if you look at it how it emerges mid-century you know with um liberals being worried about the john birch society and things like that um basically is itself often conspiratorial right that um if you look at how the the people um you know like the most famous kind of text from this period is hoff satter's paranoid style in american politics so the interesting thing about it is that it it talks about these sort of dangerous right-wing groups the same way that the dangerous right-wing groups are talking about communists right, right. so there, there's this strange process by which not only is elite paranoia and sort of conspiratorial thinking just as as dominant and often more powerful of a force, um, it's also often <laughs> precisely in response to what is being identified as conspiracy theory that that such um, that such thinking emerges. So, you know, what I always say about this, and you know, I, I it's kind of been my refrain in recent years is. I mean, the real agents of misinformation today are the mainstream media, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, 
right. the the most influential things that we could identify as clearly untrue narratives that had a, a huge influence were coming from the top, right? They were not they were not disseminating from the bottom. So as long as we don't recognize that, as long as we as long as we refuse to acknowledge that aspect of it, that we're not going to have a clear sense of what's going on, right? And I do I do think that the reasons for that are are parallel and they all have to do with the um the the way that the information economy has evolved um and you know essentially the way that a sort of surfeit of of information and proliferation of of different narratives has increased the demand for you know what we might call strong signals right um and so the the one of the things that sort of conspirator conspiratorial narratives do is they offer a strong signal, right? That, that in some way manages to stand out and that in some way, um, you know, takes advantage of or, or simply, um, you know, broadcasts directly to certain narrative expectations that we have uh, that, that have to do with um, a, a desire to find some kind of locus of agency, right? As, as an explanatory, as a, as a means of explanation. And so I would say the the proliferation of sort of top down misinformation and the proliferation of sort of bottom up misinformation are basically are they're the same phenomenon, right? They're they're both responses there's this wacky, to there's the, this wacky feedback loop too. Yeah, where they're exactly. sort of feeding off each other. Exactly. Yeah. And so the, they're those aren't separable, right? They're they're the same they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I would also, you know, my the other thing that influences me here is thinking about actual literal paranoid schizophrenia okay sure and the Let's way that, that it and the way that it um so one way that you can think about it you know paranoia i mean and freud already in his you know in some ways questionable sort of theory of paranoia he does have he does have some some great insights one of which is that paranoia is is as he argues is is actually the attempt to to sort of repair the world rather than, I mean, the, the paranoia is a kind of improvised cure. So the, the schizophrenic evolves a paranoid narrative in order to explain what has already happened to him. And what has happened to him is a total fragmentation of the world um, into this kind of, you know, nonsensical and traumatic kind of wellspring of just constant noise and overstimulation. Um, you know, where even just the most trivial, um, you know, things, just objects, uh, experiences are sort of impregnated with some kind of apparent meaning, but they don't know what it, you know, but he doesn't know what it is. Um, and so the part of the trauma of the sort of schizophrenic phenomenology is that you're, you're inundated in this world of where almost everything is signal, right? That, that where, you can't relegate noise to the background. It's, um, you know, all the noise has has become signal, but it's a sort of enigmatic signal. And so the idea there is that the, the paranoid worldview that evolves is an attempt to kind of repair that utterly shattered un- universe, right, where, um, where meaning has kind of been lost precisely by, you know, because there's a kind of surfeit of meaning in, in a sense. And so, you know, so the idea is basically that paranoia is a kind of ad hoc attempt at reconstructing 
a sort of organizing narrative for a world that has been sh a sort of symbolic world that has been shattered, right, and and left in ruins. So, I mean, I think that you know, roughly speaking, you can kind of apply that mediatically to what happens when you just have a have a again this this situation of sort of information of information surfeit or information overload, right? That that it has that schizophrenizing effect on on everyone who's who partakes of it, right? And so it, it creates the conditions by which this um, this kind of demand for these ad hoc narratives that in some way try to reconstruct something that would make sense um, and and that would would sort of organize and organize the world in in hierarchical terms and kind of assign agency in certain places and relegate other things to the background. I mean that's that's sort of how I would think about it roughly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like an oversimplification of, of that would be like, you know, people say that like conspiracy theorists basically are trying to make sense of a really complicated world or even a complex world. Um, and because they don't have the means or the information at their disposal to do so, um, they're left with sort of kind of grasping at straws. Right. Um, and, and as you said, constructing that meaning uh, where there may not be any. Uh, one of the things that I was thinking about while you were ex explaining the um, schizophrenic nature of this media ecology to me was that uh, I had a schizophrenic uh, great uncle. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but if you're an immigrant to a country, uh, you're actually like at a way higher risk of actually mm -hmm. developing yeah, schizophrenia yeah. mm -hmm. than if you're, if you're not. And of course, um, he came to the United States from the Soviet Union, um, and although I think he was already uh, kind of down that path before he left. But uh, regardless, one of the characteristics of his particular um, suffering was that he would view events on the television as relating directly to him. Mm -hmm, so if mm -hmm. he was watching a, a speech by President George Bush or something like that on the TV, he thought, oh, no, no, like George Bush is coming after me. Like when yeah. he was talking about, you know, going after terrorists or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. And I always thought that there was it, it was so interesting. There's like this extreme uh, self-centeredness as well that ties yeah. into it where it's not it's not just that all these things are really meaningful. You know, I, I, I know people personally who got pretty, um, pretty wrapped up in the last five years over, over the Trump situation and develop what you could arguably call a, a kind of Trump derangement syndrome where they're mm -hmm. just like, he's just like living rent free in their head all the time. Yeah, and they're yeah. just like bringing him up like for no reason during everyday conversation. And it's, uh, and, and, um, and you're like, okay, well, why is this, why is this like consumption of news become so meaningful to you? Like, mm -hmm. you, and, and and they're not making the the uh, the long connection of like, oh, this is going to have an actual impact in my life. Like, this is this is about me. This affects me as my schizophrenic uncle did. Um, but in a way, they're kind of acting like they are right. They're acting as if they did believe that, even though they're ostensibly not. Um, and so I think that's an interesting manifestation of what you talked about, the way in which this whole environment kind of makes us somewhat schizophrenic. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's a um, have you are you familiar with this? There was a, a New Yorker article about it probably five or six years ago. Um, the Truman Show delusion. 
Oh, I haven't read it, but I'm I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah, there there's a you know, there's a unknown at this point, you know, variant of a kind of classic, you know, paranoid schizophrenic narrative which which involves you know, this idea that you, you come to believe that all of your your whole life is um, this, you know, you're you're being filmed at all times and your life is a reality show. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the the psychiatrist who started who first identified and actually wrote a book, a quite good book about it called Suspicious Minds, um, was uh, pretty much fi- he was working at like Bellevue, I think. Mm-hmm. And he was started to notice a pattern of all these people who would turn up there, who had come from other parts of the country to New York and believe that they were like either trying to find the producer of the show that they believed they were the star of or they were um, or they were, you know, they thought that some culminating scene was going to happen at some iconic New York location where they had to be present. And um yeah, so so that's what he started noticing, and I mean, so it, it's it's obviously such a, you know, it, it it that story went a bit viral just because I think it's so um, it's something we can all sort of recognize to some extent, right? Um, not not to the same extreme degree, right? Mm-hmm. But um, but yeah, so that well, that sort of delusion of reference, right? This, I mean, the, the exact thing you described as your great uncle's symptom. You know, that's historically one of the main things that distinguishes the sort of pathological paranoid from the the sort of non-pathological one, right? In other words, if I think there are Babylonian lizards running the world or whatever, you know, I'm not, it's, I'm going to be stigmatized and thought, it's going to be thought I'm a weirdo, but I'm not going to get um, institutionalized, right? But if I think the Babylonian lizards are like literally trying to kill me, then that's when I get institutionalized, right? Mm-hmm. But as I think you're suggesting, there's a way that, you know, the kind of personalization of and, you know, it's I mean, an example I've brought up a lot of times is like, well, targeted ads are kind of an interesting case here because, you know, obviously it's a conspiracy the, to get you to buy stuff. Exactly. Right. Right. So in the old media system, right, your great uncle's typical TV based um, delusion of reference was was obviously ridiculous. Right. And, and you see this rep- this idea represented in movies, right, where where like it's often shown as like a sign of madness that someone will be sitting there and suddenly someone on the TV will start talking like uh, sort of interpolating them directly. So like, OK, obviously everyone agreed. OK, that's that's a clear sign of madness. But now now that everything is algorithmically personalized, um, it's not at all as clear cut, right? <laughs> so somebody claiming these sort of things cannot be dismissed in quite the same way as as was the case in the past. Um, so and that's a way that sort of hyperstitionally, you know, schizophrenia was was ahead of the curve, right? It, it in some way um, instantiated these things that they gradually or or it it anticipated these things that gradually sort of instantiated themselves in in real technologies right and in in real social predicaments so one of the other dynamics there that's changed uh with you know kind of the rise of the internet which for whatever reason has become kind of the centerpiece of this conversation uh is the interactivity component right so when you when you were before as i was talking about previously watching a television that was a broadcast model so there's no real feedback between 
the viewer or the user in this case uh, and the network that they're really interacting with. Yeah. You know I mean, you can write exactly. them letters or, or call in or whatever, but that's about yeah. it. Whereas now with the Internet, there's this two way there's this two way loop. And of course, uh, in some cases, you even have individuals just because of their their prominence or their ability to attract attention or what, whatever it may be, uh, who have a significant effect whenever mm -hmm. they go on the Internet on events in the real world. Um, and if, so there's this, uh, you know, some people feel like, oh, these social media platforms are so powerful. They're so much in control. But ultimately, they're only as good as the users, right? And, and the, the, yeah. the, the critical mass of users that they can attract and maintain and, and have using their site. Um, but one of the interesting dynamics here that I think about a lot is this concept of, of hyper-reality. Um, yeah. I know that you've written a lot on Baudrillard. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> um, and this this idea that overall, like, we're we're getting to a space where this distinction and and it's become especially acute since the uh, since the lockdowns as we're all spending more and more time online. This distinction between the virtual and the real is is appearing to disintegrate. Um, yeah. And and of course, anyone who is active on Twitter knows, for example, that there is this weird feedback loop between what I do on the, on the internet and what happens in the real world. And, and after a while it does become, uh, especially I'd say if you're a content creator, uh, you know, you've got your newly uh, launched podcast as well. Um, there is this, uh, merging over time, whereas most people view, uh, a, a clear distinction between sort of their online life, you know, their, their social media profiles and their online personas and okay, here's here's what I'm doing in the physical world, and that's sort of a, a very separate thing. Um, whereas I think, in particular, anyone that's trying to have an effect on the internet, anyone that's uh, doing content production, I mean, this this whole conversation that we're having right now is, I guess, technically it's a conversation in meat space, but it's also a conversation mm -hmm. over the internet, and it's going to go on the internet, and the reason it happened in the first place is because you and I know each other through the internet. Um, and so there is this strange uh, merging of the real and the virtual um, yeah. that's intensifying, it seems. Um, do you want to talk about hyper-reality and, and, and how you view that tying into these ideas? Sure. So, yeah, I think, well, so many different angles here. So here's here's one dimension of it that ties back to a couple of things we've talked about. So are you familiar with this guy, Cody Wilson? No. Who's he's uh, he's mainly known for as a pioneer of 3D printed guns. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. So he was, you know, he had a sort of media splash moment in relation to that and became very controversial. In any case, he had a he had a very weird essay, you know, early on in the pandemic that was all Baudrillard. I mean, he's very influenced by Baudrillard. So that's a whole other rabbit hole we could go down. But I'll I'll try to make it simple. So. You know, what seemed insane. So Baudrillard is best known for um, this idea that the Gulf War did not take has not taken place. Right. Um, which obviously was heavily ridiculed and so on. But I could I could explain why I think it it pretty much made sense. But uh, instead, I'll explain this for this sort of uh, later variant of it. So Cody Wilson basically argued that, you know, what we're what we were seeing with covid was the 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 sort of apotheosis of this hyper real simulated reality. Right. That that um that Baudrillard had sort of heralded so this seemed insane right because I mean come on you know this is this is a real illness that people are lit you know literally dying of and blah 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 
Um, so this sounds like the Gulf War did not take place, but sort of on steroids, right? But, I mean, this argument has been utterly vindicated, I would argue, by the fact that the way that we relate to and experience the virus is entirely through the realm of simulation, right? And that, I would say that is even true if you get it. Um, How so? Because, because um, first of all, just the experience of getting it is now mediated through your pol- your sort of um, this overlay of political discourse, right? Mm-hmm. So, so experiencing having COVID is itself all sort of already politicized. Um, I mean, that's not true for everyone. I, you could I would say, say polluted, but, and it might be close to the same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, but, um, but, but, but here's here's an example that I think explains this. Um, so, a friend of mine who's a medical anthropologist uh, pointed this pointed me to this uh, yesterday or the day before. So, you know, people are designing these apps that are like calculators that are supposed to help you determine the risk level of any particular activity you might undertake, right? Um, so this is pure logic of simulation, right? It's it's basically your life is this this um, this point in a kind of, I mean, and and the you know the the important point to understand about hyperreality is we're not just talking about simulation in the sense of some kind of um, VR type experience. We're talking about it in the sense of flight simulation. We're talking about it in the sense of missile launch simulation. In other words, in the sense of plotting out points on a sort of uh, mathematical grid, right? Mm-hmm. And of everything being plugged into this probabilistic um, calculating system, right? And so this is why part of the point of, um, the, the important point of hyperreality is not, um, is not unreal, you know, it's not fakeness or, or art, you know, it's not, it's not um, artificiality. For Baudrillard, that's actually the earlier phase of of the the kind of procession of simulacra right the 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 third order simulacrum of of simulation the 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 important point of it is not fakeness or or counterfeit right which is comes from the earlier phase it's indeterminacy Mm -hmm. so what does that mean well it means that you have a math you have a mathematical model which is essentially probabilistic right and everything is plugged into that model right so all of reality is is gradually inserted into that model. And so it is radically indeterminate at any point, right? So um, so this experience that, you know, you experience the pandemic by, um, and not, not that necessarily that, that many people are doing it, but I'd say it's kind of the leading edge of this logic, right? You experience the pandemic by um, calculating on your phone the risk factor of going to the supermarket, right? And so your your experience of just daily activities becomes part of this probabilistic model, right? And everything you do can be understood through that logic, right? And everything that happens can be understood through that logic. I mean, it's even interesting in relation to the ambiguity of of these, you know, many people point this out, right? But I mean, it's it's pretty indeterminate when they say such and such number of people or such and such percentage of the population has had COVID or something like that, right? I mean, the tests themselves are, um, you know, they're they're sort of um, within a range of probability, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the and and in fact, like how exactly you process them determines how many false positives or false negatives or whatever you're going to get, right? 
Um, and so, you know, if you look at the New York Times recently, you know, miraculously, the the curve starts going down, like, right after Biden's inauguration, right? Yeah. Um, so that just, you look at that and you think, I mean, if, if you're a, if you're conspiratorial minded, you think this is just fit, you know, if, if you're one of those like fake pand you know, lib pandemic people, right. That's uh, obviously it's just total um, candy to you. But, but the point I would make there is that, you know, because everything is, is plugged into these probabilistic models, you know, th there is just a fundamental indeterminacy with the kind of, the kind of reality that's being offered up here, right. That, that, um, at every point, there is there is an indeterminacy, and and so the nature of hyperreality is that you, you you experience that as in other words um, you experience the model right mm -hmm. as the most real, and so you know again what I would say theory. to the sort of yeah what what I would say to the the sort of Baudrillardian or the the sort of Baudrillard uh, scoffers is. Um, you know, the point here is is not that there isn't a real virus or something like that, right? That would be that would be a very naive and much older um, version of of thinking about simulacra. Um, the the point is rather that the reality of the virus inheres in the model, right? That the way that we experience this reality, the way we think it, the way we understand it, is entirely mediated through this um, this kind of modeled. Um, simulation, right? And that's and that's it's it's not that that is, um, you know, taking the place of the virus or 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 means that it doesn't exist. It's it's that th that's the fundamental substrate of reality as we experience it, sort of intuitively, right? Mm -hmm. So so that's kind of how I would how I would think about that. So, well, yeah. So there are so many ways I, I could go with this. One of the things that I wanted to pull on uh earlier that you talked about uh it was this nature of, of conspiracy and self-reference um and its relationship to well what you're talking about right now which is simulation uh and in particular people who believe in what's called the simulation theory that is that we're living in a simulation yeah yeah um and there's a particular variant of simulation theory that i find uh, well first of all i would like to say just just because I, this is my perch and I can say it. Uh, simulation theory is very, very close to actual just straight-up theology. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and I just find it funny that there's so many atheists who believe in simulation theory. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, outside of that, that, that that's an out, out, offside remark. Um, there's a variant of simulation theory that actually posits this sort of idea that's also kind of popular in kind of like meme space on the internet, uh, which is that there are like sort of real people and that there are kind of like not real people mm -hmm. and and these not real people NPCs. are what's called like yeah the npcs yeah. uh <laughs> and so some of us are are real characters with like real personalities and and real thought like genuine thoughts and then some of us are sort of these um i guess deterministic you know machines or something Automata, something or rather yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah 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 uh who don't really have real thoughts they don't have any kind of original mm -hmm. thoughts and uh like I guess the way that you know in which you're one of the real people is that you have stumbled upon this idea. Um, mm. mm -hmm. uh, but in particular, like there's a variant of this of simulation theory that says that like certain people are special. And the reason that they know they're special is because so many unusual things have happened to them in life that they must be 
living in some kind of simulation because, oh, how could so many spectacular things be happening? Um, mm -hmm. The canonical example, or I guess the ex exponent, exponent of this would be like Elon Musk, right? Who, who mm -hmm. both believes in simulation theory and as far as I'm aware, uh, believes in this particular variant where part of the reason he believes it is be is because his life is so uh, is so strange and so uh, <laughs> exceptional that it must be there must be like sort of you know clockwork uh, figures um, yeah moving moving the pieces on the chessboard. Um, how do you think of simulation theory in, in terms of in, in terms of of this? We don't have to talk about Elon Musk specifically, although he was on Joe Rogan yesterday, so maybe he's He's fodder. Anyway. Well, I mean, I think that's a pretty good illustration of this, this dominance of this kind of probabilistic thinking, right? Where where you, you assess your life in terms of a probabilistic model and you say, you know, how essentially how, you know, what's the percentage likelihood that this would happen and this would happen and this would happen, right? You know, if, if you spread out all of the different possible life courses, right? Um, you know, and, and in this case, in simulation theory, it would be, well, there are all these multiple different simulations, and in some of them, you know, one set of events is set in motion, and some of, you know, so, yeah, so the, I think the idea there is 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 congruent with this, with this um, the dominance of this kind of probabilistic um, sort of model that, um, that, again, you know, interprets reality in terms of simulated modeling, right? Um, and so, so in other words, before you even posit the 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 existence of the the simulacrum that you're living in, you're you're already kind of thinking of your life in those terms, right? You're already saying, okay, my life is this kind of series of events that can be understood probabilistically, um, and and for which the the odds can be calculated in some sense. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, I, you know, there's so much um, historically, you know, both philosophy. I mean, to me, this is both a theme of philosophy and of of paranoid schizophrenia, right? Where you have um, Descartes in, in Meditations on First Philosophy. I mean, he literally, yeah. ha you know, as he's going through it, he says, um, you know, one of the things he imagines in his process of systematic doubt is like, I look out at the street and I imagine all these people are automata, right? They're, they're just, um, they're just these kind of clockwork figures. And of course, that's um, also a sort of theme of that period, because you had this, um, this, uh, you know, obsession with, um, with creating aut clockwork automata. So you have that sort of history. So that's like the NPC, you know, the sort of Cartesian NPC, I guess. And then, you know, I think of Daniel Paul Schraber's term for this is fleetingly improvised men in his memoirs. So the idea is like, basically, he thinks like the whole human race has been wiped out except for him. But so when he looks around, you know, he turns over there and like there are some people over there. But his his belief is that like before he turned, they weren't even there. Right. They, mm -hmm. they were fleetingly yeah. improvised. Schrodinger's cat um, type situation. Yeah. But well, they you know, the, the people were. um you know, the, there's this higher force that just like spontaneously put those people there who are not even, you know, who are basically virtual mm -hmm. um, just in order to make him believe that they were there. So, you know, so obviously that ha this has a long history, but it's interesting to me the way that it's posited today. I mean, because, again, I think the Cartesian version would would match this kind of earlier um, model of simulation that Baudrillard identifies, which is the. Um, identified with the counterfeit, 
right? That that basically the the clockwork automata are are sort of counterfeit people. Um, whereas I think the the Muskian example that you just brought up is kind of um, and you know and the general idea of of the world as a a, a sort of you know video game like simulation where you have these again sort of fleetingly improvised NPCs. Um, it I think it does fit into this kind of plotting out of the world on in terms of of sort of mathematical models. Yeah. Well, certainly you and I must be real because um, we're having this conversation. <laughs> All right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so where do I go next here? Um, so I want to talk about Gerard with you. Um, I've recently gotten quite interested in Gerard, um, actually after reading, uh, well, this isn't recently, but several years ago I read uh, Peter Thiel's uh, Zero to One. And that sort of got me interested in Gerard because there's a lot of Gerardian theory uh, kind of baked into that book in a more or less esoteric way, I would say, because he doesn't mention Gerard, but it's heavily influenced yeah, yeah. Um, at its core. Um, and uh, and in fact, I, I invited a former professor of mine who uh, runs Contagion, which is a, a, right. a, a yeah, journal yeah. of mimetic violence. Um, it's a Gerardian journal. Um, and, and hopefully he'll be coming on soon. But anyway, um, you were talking, you mentioned uh, witch trials earlier, and uh, this is obviously a classic example of the scapegoating mechanism and, and how it manifests in the world. Um, and I think, it, strangely enough, uh, you know, you were saying that, okay, these witch trials were always conducted by the elites. You know, there's this sort of myth that, oh, it's like, you know, it's like these, these paranoid, like, uh, you know, yeoman farmers or whatever, who, who just sort of are uppity about about their women and, and like decide to like start burning witches. But you're saying, no, 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 it's, it's always been sort of orchestrated from the top. Um, and I'm finding similarities between that and our discussion of, uh, of again, this this new like war on domestic terrorism or I mean, you could arguably just say it's like a war on on an anonymity. Right. Like, you know, and, and there's all kinds of conspiracy theories that that shoot out about that, about like universal identification systems and microchips in people's arms from the vaccine and so forth. But um, there's this scapegoating that I believe is happening right now in the United States uh, in particular, and but also just generally with, with the rise of the internet against kind of dissident speech, dissident thought. Um, and, it, and it all ties very closely into uh, your project or who would be like the subjects of your project or maybe the people most interested in your project, uh, this outsider theory. These are all outsiders. Um, and there seems to be this coordinated effort that is very, very top down and, and now very obvious to corral in anybody that might be too far on the fringes or might be trying to promulgate dangerous ideas. And there's a sense that, well, a lot of these people that they're targeting, I, I think um, my, the particular case that I think is overblown is the QAnon people. Um, I think that heavily targeting and wanting to prosecute and, and find ways to jail, you know, anyone who's, you know, big on QAnon or, you know, a QAnon in influencer or whatever you want to call it. Um, I don't think it's nearly as big of a threat as the system is portraying it as. Um, and what's curious is that they're still responding uh, with sort of overwhelming force to these perturbations. Um, and I, I think of it as a scapegoating uh, type of phenomenon. How are you thinking of it? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think um, if, you know, to me, it all ties into uh, the role of Trump to some extent, um, who I wrote about back in, you know, right after he was elected, um, kind of in these terms. So, you know, what, what's interesting about Trump is that he he sort of figured out how to occupy the position of the scapegoat um, in the sense of being just this this kind of, you know, magnetically polarizing figure who could just assemble this vast array of people who might otherwise not agree with each other or whatever um, in opposition to him. Right. And that he but that he managed to kind of you know, really totally intuitively kind of marshal that position into something quite in a, in a strange way and maybe sort of accidentally politically effective, at least in the campaigning part of it. Right. Um, so I think he, you know, I, I, and get, again, thinking about Teal, I mean, he has these, um, these interesting lectures that were kind of part of what went into um to zero to one yeah, where he kind of goes in, but where he kind of goes into it a bit more but this relationship between the scapegoat and the king right that mm-hmm. the the scapegoat position you know it's obviously normally one that leads to your being expelled or killed right at least in the traditional context but there's this odd reversibility where the figure of the the king, I mean, and this is quite explicit in some cultures, is is sacrificial, right? That the king yes. is is a kind of sacrifice victim in waiting, who manages to kind of hold on to that position. And you know, there are various examples of you know when of ethno, ethnography of cultures that practice some kind of ritual sacrifice, where you know a victim, like in Brazil, the um, some of the um, accounts of of these like cannibal tribes right where the victim would be captured and then would be essentially treated like royalty right for a a certain period and then would be sacrificed and eaten right Mm -hmm. and so anyway my point is um there's something if you can occupy that position and sort of hold it then there's some power to be gained by um by uh, by doing that right so I think Trump is an interesting example of someone who and, you know, I, I would say that institutionally there's a kind of scapegoat dimension of just the presidency in general, structurally, which you can see in the way that like here's here's an example that pre-Trump. Right. So when there was the the deep water oil spill in the, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico, mm-hmm. like I remember this weird thing that people were like you know, Obama has to fix this. Like, almost like people were talking about it, like he needs to literally go and like physically plug the hole. So I think that's the way that that somehow any disaster is like part of the position of the president is that any disaster is is directly on you, right? So that is the scapegoat, right? The scapegoat is the, the one who takes responsibility for misfortune. Um, and, you know, if you think about witchcraft, again, the famous Evans Pritchard um, anthropologist, you know, his nice pithy statement of this was, you know, witchcraft is the cause of misfortune. So the point of the witch is that the witch is the person who can be identified as the cause of some, you know, arbitrary disaster that befalls the community and can be can be um, sort of made into the, the the means by which the community purges the thing that caused the disaster to befall it. Anyway. OK, so Trump. Sorry, going back to QAnon because I'm I'm going I'm going off here a little bit. So Trump kind of occupies that position in an unstable 
and destabilizing way, but he manages to kind of hold on to it for a certain amount of time. I think what's happening now is basically now he's, you know, literally out of the picture, right? He's not, he's not on TV. He's not, he's not drawing all that energy towards him. Mm-hmm. And so that energy has to go somewhere. And the, the direction that it's currently going is towards these figures who can be kind of identified with his, with his crimes, right? With his, you know, and these are sort of metaphysical crimes, right? They're, they're, they're the, the crimes that, um, that are often attributed to the scapegoat or the, the witch, right? They're, they're basically of having just undermined the whole basis of the community and, and have threatened it with dissolution, right? So, so they need to find people who can, um, who can be put in that position and can be again, sort of purged so as to, you know, purge this misfortune from the community. So that, I think that's how I would understand it. I mean, the Q thing, of course, itself is like pretty fascinating so because it, it, it itself is kind of a, you know, essentially what it imagines is a, um, a, a kind of, I mean, very similarly to some, you know, witchcraft as well as anti-Semitic, um, you know, mythologies where you have, um, you know, children being kidnapped and sort of ritually sacrificed. Um, you know, this is a very, this has a long history in, in sort of scapegoating the, the kind of myths and, and folklore that, that justified scapegoating, right? Um, that, uh, so, so Q is itself, you know, its whole mythology is, is sort of, um, in a way parallel to the one that, um, that is being directed against it, right? <laughs> so yeah. that, that goes back to the, the point I was drawing from Jesse Walker. Mm-hmm. Well, so. and, and also after the, um, after the, I guess, after President Trump left office, there was also this, um, I guess, next level of conspiratorial thinking by the followers of QAnon, who yeah. thought, well, okay, since Q didn't deliver on the plan, then Q must actually be a defector, right? Q mm. is actually like a double, a double agent of, or a triple agent right. in this case. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so, whether or not Q is a, itself an op uh, is a whole other question that yeah. we probably yeah. won't ever know the answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very interesting to ponder uh, how that mm-hmm. that dynamic just continually it, you can just keep escalating it ad infinitum. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, more about the populists and more about the I guess the Trumpists, if you want to call them that, although I don't believe every populist is a Trumpist. There are populists on the left and populists on the right. And I think a lot of the cleavages in our political so- system right now are actually, more accurately characterized as populist versus elitist or globalist versus localists rather than left versus right. Uh, I, I'm someone who's been continually pushing to just sort of like encourage people to like start moving past that language because it just sort of is stifling in terms of our, our thinking. Um, but the one of your essays that I recently read, uh, just because you were tweeting about it and some people were giving you some crap for it, uh, you wrote a piece about the I guess you could say mischaracterization or or misunderstanding of Marcuse's idea of repressive tolerance. Um, and, 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 and you can correct me on this because I may not remember the argument uh, quite as succinctly as you made it because it is a very particular point that you were making. And I remember this because I read it and I thought I was going to argue with you. 
And then I read it again <laughs> and I was like, okay, well, he does have a good point here, but the, the argument is actually like more nuanced than, than his critics are, are giving him credit for. Um, but basically you were saying that uh, Marcuse has this idea of repressive tolerance. Uh, and uh, if you want to just briefly uh, remind the viewers what, what repressive tolerance is. Yeah. So he's you know writing in 1965 and his his argument is that when you have a and the background of this is you know he's part of the Frankfurt school and the Frankfurt school has this understanding of the culture industry right which is this um this huge apparatus that seemingly you know free and here we could get into kind of you know whether this is ultimately conspiratorial or not, right? But but that at least seemingly freely and independently is nevertheless an incredibly effective sort of propaganda machine for um, maintaining the status quo and supporting the and and basically, you know, making people either blind to or accepting of the dominance of this elite, which is essentially identified with the the sort of you know, this is mid-century sort of military industrial complex, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea of repressive tolerance is that, you know, what part of the way that the system works, unlike the sort of classic totalitarianism that a lot of people were writing about in this time of, of the, you know, basically Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, is it, it is tolerance, right? It, it permits dissent. It, it, it does not prosecute people for, for dissent, um, and it, I mean, this was post McCarthyism. So obviously that, that may have been a bit more nuanced, uh, the previous decade, but writing in the sixties, you know, the idea was it's permitting all of this dissent to flower. And thus we must be living in a freer society than those bad totalitarian places. So Marcuse's argument is no, because basically what happens is when you have, a a society that, um, first of all, is dominated by the this incredibly powerful sort of corporate culture industry. Um, it, it can allow people who are in some way dissenting to speak, but can simply, you know, it's oversimplify, sort of drown them out, right? And it, and, and it also falsely presents the, the, there is being a kind of parody between, um, you know, the, the sort of establishment position and the dissenting position, right? It, it sort of falsely presents it that those two positions can be debated openly. Um, and, you know, the, the dissenting, the dissenters will not be punished. And therefore, they, they have equal rights to make their case as anyone else. So Marcuse's mm -hmm. position is that when you have that kind of imbalance, whereby the culture industry sort of dominates the airwaves with a certain set of messages that that support the the reigning establishment, um, you know, which he and I think something ambiguous here is he talks about the right, right, and I think he does not mean like the John Birch Society or the Barry Goldwater or something like that. I think, you know, because he's talking about the people who are, you know, at that time perpetrating the Vietnam War. So I think within the right, he's including, let's say, the Johnson administration, you know, the entire sort of bipartisan, you know, essentially pro-military industrial complex um, and sort of capitalist elite, right? So so his, his claim is that the, the disposition of, the sort of mediatic disposition of the society so favors the right 
that it represses the left more effectively even than would be the case in a sort of, I mean, he talks about this as democratic totalitarianism, right? Or totalitarian democracy. Um, even more so than would be the case in a in a purely totalitarian society, right? Because it, it gives the because it also grants the illusion that it's possible to hold these ideas. Mm-hmm. So repressive tolerance is tolerance that actually re- succeeds in repressing precisely by tolerating and creating this false premise that there's an equal contestation when there isn't. Mm-hmm. So so yeah. So that's basically the argument. And then I don't know if you want me to get what his proposed sort of remedy to that is. Well, so we can get into the Um, remedies real quick, but I just wanted to say um, you were arguing in this particular piece, and of course you can state it more clear than I can if I'm mistaken, that the true inheritors of Marcuse's idea of repressive tolerance or his, I guess, fix to repressive tolerance, which we'll get into, are, are actually the right. You know, I would I would say are I would say in particular the reactionary right rather than sort of the mainstream right, whatever whatever that means, um, rather than the left. Uh, whereas often the way that is characterized online, and you talk about these sort of, you know, meme lords, people who who sort of just like repackage French theory into memes and then act like it's like new stuff um, that no one knew about. Uh, uh, that, that they're sort of getting it wrong. They're getting it wrong by assuming that uh, who Marcuse is talking about is still the left, uh, and that is, in fact, more closely uh, the, line, the right. So there's been this sort of strange uh, reversal or inversion, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that about right? Yeah. So uh, basically his... So in terms of his prescription, I mean, he describes it as utopian, right? But but basically his argument is that um, the the as a consequence of this situation that I described, um, he he argues that the left, right, should um, should not accept this premise of tolerance, but should rather strive to suppress or be intolerant of the positions of the right. Which again, he I mean, and this is why it's utopian, right? Because basically what he's saying is that we should we should move to a situation where the what are currently the dominant um, ideological forces of society should be suppressed, right? And tolerance should be accorded instead to what are currently the dissident factions of the society. So obviously this is utopian because it, I mean, and he describes it specifically as a petitio principi, right? He says, well, obviously... In order for that to occur, it would have to be already the case that the left is is more capable of exerting power than it currently is, right? Because how else is it going to suppress the right? So, you know, so he frames it explicitly as as sort of a paradoxical or circular argument. But um, at the same time, his his basic, you know, LDR is we shouldn't on the left um, accept the premise of tolerance. Right. Um, in the sort of classic liberal sense, right, of sort of tolerance of of the sort of universal tolerance of of free speech. Um, so. Yeah. So the way I sort of took that into the present is to observe that. Um, I mean, so first of all, you have this longstanding idea that Marcuse is that this argument is the actual inspiration for a lot of 
the the sort of censorious political correctness that you know first became dominant on campuses and then became dominant in in the media and more broadly mm-hmm. you know as cancel culture right so so in other words the idea the claim there is that that is applied marcusean repress or I mean, his own version of repressive, you know, there's the repressive tolerance that he's criticizing, which is his people being repressed. Then there's the repressive tolerance that he's supporting, which is his people repressing the bad people like the right. So so that version of the sort of positive program of repressive tolerance, which is basically using whatever means available to repress the right's ideological positions, you know, could be seen as the... um, as the sort of um, successor, you know, the, the way that's manifested in political correctness and so on could be seen as as the direct um, sort of application of Marcuse's argument. Now, I guess my um, my critique of that reading, which I, which I think is partly right, um, but my critique of it is that it doesn't take into account the um, structural and material conditions that prevail today, which are basically that um, far from being um, repressed, a, a wide range of what you know we might have thought of as left-wing positions are actually embraced and and tolerated by precisely the force, the underlying forces that. Uh, Marcuse saw as the the real enemy, right? Which is essentially the the, the military industrial complex, right? And the the sort of um, corporate capitalist regime. So, in other words, if you have the same basic um, material and um, sort of structural dispensation, which remains unchanged, but some of the positions that were, you know, regarded as sort of beyond the pale left positions in Marcuse's time or even 20 years ago or 10 years ago are now, you know, you can be sort of Raytheon or, you know, you can be um, whatever, you can be the CIA mm. and and sort of, um, you know, tolerate or even embrace those positions. Um, then something very strange is happening here, right? Because um, because the idea that, I mean, you know, the point of Marcuse's argument was that the left needs to repress these ideologies because they're the basis of this unjust social system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the left needs to suppress the ideas as part of a, a, a political economic transformation. So what if, but, but what if um, the political economic uh, dispensation remains the same, but the ideologies shift. Well, um, wh- what happens is that the people who are actually in the position of Marcuse in 1965, saying um, we as marginal as ideologically marginalized people have to reject this premise of tolerance, and you know push towards a situation where we can actively suppress the positions that are currently marginalizing our own you know that position is not that of a le- of a sort of let's say middle of the road leftist today i don't think 
mm-hmm. um, in, in many regards. So on the other hand, I guess the argument I made there, it is actually a position you see increasingly adopted, you know, as you said, kind of on the reactionary right, right? And the and the the idea there is precisely that um, the this kind of liberal, this kind of progressive liberal ideology has so has become so fully dominant in the institutions that they have no ability to in any way, you know, advocate, you know, the, the, the playing field is so slanted against them, right. That embracing this idea of tolerance is, is a sort of a fool's game, right. From their perspective. And so in a sense, they have come to occupy a position, not unlike the one that Marcuse describes the left in, in 1965. So I think that's pretty much the, the argument in broad strokes. Right. Well, thank you for recapitulating that yeah. for me here. Uh, I appreciate it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, one of the problems that I had in, in processing your argument and trying to formulate what I thought about it, because I re- initially, as I said, I was going to try to write some tweets to argue against it, um, <laughs> because I thought that you were sort of mischaracterizing some things. But then I, I considered that you probably had, saw, had had sort of thought it through well enough. Um, and that, you know, just for the sake of the piece, it doesn't make sense to just argue against yourself uh, in circles. Um, but yeah, I, I, I agree here that there, there does seem to be a kind of mutually escalating, uh, fervor for intolerance of the other side's ideas. And I think this is bo- on both sides. Yeah. Um, yeah. again, tying into, to, to mimetic theory, um, where, it's true that in these large military industrial complex and related corporate institutions, um, it, it's very it's very obvious at this point that the ideology is more or less left or at least nominally left. Um, but it's not left in the way that the people in 1965 would have imagined it would be. And I think the key disconnect for Marcuse is that he viewed the shift in ideological orientation as correlating with a uh, an underlying change or transformation in kind of like the economic and, and the power structures that surround it. Um, but of course, if those are uh, a more first order uh, attractor, then, you know, you can sort of almost interchange the ideology, right? You can you can sort of just like paint it you could paint the CIA building mm-hmm. rainbow colors and it's still exactly. the CIA. Um, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think, um, you know, I, 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 uh, I tend to um, be an observer, at least a lurker in lots of different political circles. Um, and yes, the, the leftists that I know that who would consider themselves true leftists are also appalled by this. Um, mm-hmm. But of course, many of the mainstream liberals or, or leftists, if you want to call them that, um, that that I interact with, uh, you know, in my normal life, don't really see any of this as a problem. And in fact, they're still sort of talking as if it's still 1965 and as if there are these mm-hmm. sort of marginalized groups that have no power. And and then it's like, well, like, have you looked around at like Google or like the CIA or like mm-hmm. the NSA or like any of these giant power institutions? They're all like down for the the you know I, I don't know if you could quite say they're down for the revolution. They don't exactly want socialism or communism, 
Um, but they are certainly not, uh, at least on the surface, right-wing organizations <laughs> uh, yeah. in any meaningful sense. Um, and so I think teasing out this like apparent contradiction is something that, you know, jives a lot of people the wrong way. Mm -hmm. um, and I agree that there is like an intolerance. I mean, there is an intolerance streak that's coming out of the reactionary right where they're saying, well, look, we've, we've tolerated these ideas for so long. And it's because we've tolerated them that they've been allowed to proliferate and they've been allowed to sort of enter into the, the minds and the institutions of power. Um, and they're the reason that we're getting canceled and we can't, you know, talk or whatever. Um, and so therefore, uh, what we have to do is start playing their game, right? We have to play mm -hmm. dirty just like they do. Uh, and then there's this sort of other other group on the right who are sort of more on the libertarian side, uh, less authoritarian, um, who are more geared towards, I mean, often they go under the label of like classical liberals, which I, I would say that I identified myself as one for, for quite a while. Um, and the classical liberals are making this argument that like, no, 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 actually like if we if we engage in the same, I guess, bad behavior or unfair uh, selectivity around ideas that our, our sort of sensible ideological opponents are, then, uh, you know, we're just going to, whatever, we're going to get called, we're going to be called hypocrites. And also it's not really the kind of society that we want. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have to sort of go back to the way that things were, or at least supposedly were before. <laughs> um, I've become increasingly skeptical of that position and whether or not it's even realistic. Uh, more and more, uh, I, I've come to the conclusion that I don't think there ever really was a kind of um, true classical liberalism. I, I view it more as like a an ideal than an actual state of affairs that existed in any place. Um, but I think there are arguments to be made that we're less tolerant than we were before. Um, and so... One of the things that I wanted to ask you is whether or not you think that this this concept of free speech, which this whole idea of repressive tolerance kind of centers around uh, being able to sort of speak your mind. But then through that, it kind of uh, or, or, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm moving ahead of myself. What do you think the mechanism there is um, by which it sort of maintains power uh, despite allowing dissent? Um, because if it's true that the power structures will remain even if you allow the proliferation of dissent, then the argument that we should that we should be intolerant actually doesn't make sense. Because right, of course right. the the dissent wouldn't do anything. Um mm -hmm. and so what do you think is the purported mechanism uh of that? Do you think that, for example, allowing lots of dissent, and this is the argument that I think a lot of classical liberals would make, um, although they don't they tend to veil it, I would say. Uh, allowing the dissent is actually sort of like a release valve for mm -hmm. internal tensions and contradictions and for the unseen and the unheard. And, and by allowing them to sort of have this, this fit, right, to throw a tantrum uh, and to do so in their speech, in their protest behavior uh, online, you know, as long as they're not hurting anyone, as long as they're not destroying property, whatever, whatever the, the restrictions you want to put on it are, um, that it sort of dissipates the energy and in fact actually stops the real revolution from actually being able to take place in terms of upending existing power structures and and and, and doing a transformation uh, on the society in a meaningful way because of the fact that 
well, you could sort of just like let off steam, right? You can go talk on your podcast or tweet about it on Twitter, like, you know, like like the president before, or, sorry, like President Trump before he was banned on Twitter. You can go sort of like blow off steam and then, you know, you don't need to have your like, I don't know, uh, <laughs> you don't need to have like your your military coup or whatever, whatever people thought he was going to do. Um, do you view that as like, uh, as like a, I'm sorry. What do you what do you think of that argument that that there is this like mechanism of dissipation of the energies um, mm -hmm. that actually prevents a real change from happening? Or do you think that like, no, 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 um, there does there is going to be uh, some kind of transformation if you allow dissent. And so therefore, there I mean, I, I'm not going to ask you to, to make an authoritarian argument, but go ahead. Yeah. So a few things um, to me, it's interesting. So first of all, for a long time, you know, I really, I mean, I, I, even before I discovered it, I kind of tacitly accepted this Marcuse argument that, I mean, at least the, the sort of descriptive side of it. And that's partly because I, I kind of got interested in Marxism as a teenager and was, was sort of, um, on the left. Um, and you know, it was, it was obvious to me, and we're talking like late nineties, early two thousands here. It was obvious to me that the left was profoundly irrelevant in American culture and politics, at least the, the sort of Marxist left. Mm -hmm. And it was also obvious to me that that had nothing to do with persecution or the ideas being banned, right? It just had to do with the way that they could be sort of seemingly spontaneously marginalized and made irrelevant and even kind of laughable. Right. So it, you know, it's, it seemed to me that, I mean, intuitively I understood this idea that you can. Um, you can make things, uh, you can make things, you can make certain ideas, um, in, inefficacious just by allowing them to be circulated, but, you know, just in various more tacit ways, kind of rendering them irrelevant. So like that, that argument seemed obvious to me, but I do, there are things that I don't, I mean, I think it's also worth looking at what the positions are that, that do become explicitly um, uh, banned or or at least that are, you know, um, th that, you know, if, if you adopt them, you attract like a large consensus of people who agree that those positions should be marginalized, right? And I think when you when you think about what those are, you do learn things, not necessarily because they're correct, but because the fact that they can't be allowed or can't be given a platform, tells you something about the sort of larger the 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 um the things that the the things that are um not debatable right the things that are that are not debatable so to me i mean the the thing that i most um that most struck me about i mean you know the trump camp the original trump campaign right touched on a few of these and was partly remarkable because it he said things that were impermissible in the sort of bipartisan dispensation and, you know, again, were um, the basis of sort of attempts to, to effectively cancel him, right? Hence his kind of scapegoat energy. Um, and these were not necessarily, you know, the ones that are usually brought up are the like, oh, the Mexicans are rapists and so on, right? That's the stuff that's usually brought up. But I mean, the stuff that isn't brought up as much but that to me was remarkable was like trade right mm. the stuff he said about trade now you know it is absolutely true that being anti-free trade 
particularly at that point, was just a no-no across the political spectrum, right? You you could not in any respectable political context adopt that position anymore, right? And that hadn't been the case decades before, but the basic political economy necessitated that the political and media elite unite around this position, right? That that free trade is is good and necessary, and if you, you know, if you oppose it on the right, then you're uh, anti-growth and so on, and you don't believe in dynamic capitalism. If you oppose it on the left, then maybe you're like racist and you don't want people in Bangladesh to have jobs. But, you know, that was a position that was heavily stigmatized, right? And you could see how that, um, you know, so it, it not only had to be, um, it not only had to be sort of, um, sort of rejected, but it had to be treated as sort of beyond the pale of what you could what you could adopt if you wanted to be respectable. And you'd be kind of ridiculed and cast out of polite society if you were against free trade, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean that's a that's a super interesting case, right? Because it it doesn't um you know it it's not necessarily a left or right position. It's it's been adopted to some extent by both. Um, but it was clearly a kind of third rail of American politics for a long time. And then Trump sort of violated that. So I think that's a good example of how there are certain positions you can adopt that have to be sort of repressed in more overt ways, not not in the sense of being banned, but just in the sense of being so heavily stigmatized. Um, and, you know, so that that's like an example of where I think it's it's not just that, you know, the these sort of oppositional positions that in some way actually like call into question the the system in some broad sense are are sort of allowed to be pronounced but then can just be kind of subtly marginalized like there are some that actually have to be directly stigmatized and treated with total disdain um by the entire establishment and sort of treated as beyond the pale right and so i think trump's you know kind of certain kind of naivete that allowed him to, but also kind of, you know, um, just incredible political instinct that allowed him to kind of get away with that. Now, it didn't allow him to actually really do much about it. I mean, I think he sort of at the margins did some things related to that. But so I don't know. I've sort of been going on about that for a while. But that to me is like one of the more interesting cases of Mm. um, that protectionism was a a position that like in the course of my lifetime I saw totally marginalized um and and it's a position that unlike fantasizing about repeating the bolshevik revolution or whatever you do when you're a when you're a marxist right unlike fantasizing about some kind of future dream of full communism which I don't think anybody really cares that much you know re- I mean it's just it's not dangerous because it's it's larp you know it's sort of intellectual larping um you know, questioning free trade is does actually strike at the heart of something that's fundamental to our, you know, to the the current political, economic, and media establishment, and and it's um, it's sort of necessary functioning. So, yeah, and that's one of those issues too, where I am seeing again this kind of uh, ideological realignment, where a lot of your classic um, socialist or even Marxist people on the left would be actually in favor of 
of trade barriers and restrictions on international trade, uh, and, and they would be in good company with with a lot of the reactionary right who, you know, out of places like the Rust Belt, I'm here in Michigan, uh, who, you know, are upset about, you know, the loss of manufacturing jobs and sort of the hollowing out of, of middle America. And, and, and both of those uh, groups could find common ground on this idea of, well, maybe we shouldn't be like just selling out to international finance and these large soulless, uh, you know, multinational conglomerates who frankly just don't care about uh, any country or the people you know, largely living in it. Um, yeah. And so uh, anyway, so that, that's one of those uh, interesting. It's interesting to me that that's you brought that up as um, one of the sort of third rails, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, that's untouchable. But the victims are not are not obvious. Like, who's the victim of trade barriers? Uh, well, we're not going to have sort of like an abstract notion of economic efficiency maximized globally. Yeah. OK, yeah. well, like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I'm not so sure. Uh, so anyway, um, but we're uh, we're getting close to probably the end of our time here. Um, we've been going mm-hmm. on for quite a while, and I think yeah. we could go on for a lot longer uh, at any rate. Uh, I want to ask you a few more questions here before I let you go while I still have you. Um, one of the things is uh, about just kind of like the your, your general research disposition. I mean, you're all over the place, and I mean that in a good way. I mean, your, your writing is 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 great and you're drawing on all kinds of sources and even in this topic even in this conversation you've mentioned a bunch of books um that i've tried to write down all of um and that i'm going to have to review but uh what are the corners of the internet or subcultures or phenomena right now that are going on that you're most interested in in the context of your outsider theory project good question yeah, I mean, going back to uh, something we've discussed previously, I'm just very interested in the, you know, sort of anon world and particularly how it's um, how it's related to the the COVID crisis, um, and you know, not just the anon world, but just just the fact that you have this uh, very interesting phenomenon of just random people without any particularly significant platform clearly being much more honest and trustworthy observers of the situation than than much of the media so i mean that's that's been just a really interesting phenomenon to observe and you know it it relates to a lot of stuff i'm interested in um another much weirder thing that i that i'm that I have written about and, and will probably write more about was um, the sort of 5G related, the way the 5G conspiracy theories and COVID conspiracy theories kind of merged. And so there was this idea that 5G um, was the the vehicle by which COVID spread or that COVID was like a myth to cover up the, the effects on the body of 5G radiation. Yep. So, I mean, this, that, you know, I, again, I wrote, I wrote some about that last year. Um, what's interesting to me is that it, it makes evidence something that, um, you know, that that's just literally true, which is that you have this co coevolution of the of sort of mediatic or informational virality and you know literal virality, and and that those two things are inseparable, right? That that we 
we experience the virus again through, you know, through the lens of this, this simulation that's, that's sort of streamed to us at all times. And um, so the virus is always virtual as well as real. And um, I mean, in fact, it's like fundamentally virtual, right? And sort of secondarily real, I would say. Um, and so the 5G conspiracy, which has sort of petered out, you don't hear as much about it anymore. But to me, it's like, a fascinating sort of myth, which is one of the ways I think about conspiracy. It's it's a kind of mythology um, that you know captures something very real, right? Which is that a there's a deep connection between um, sort of informational globalization, right? Which 5G is the the physical, you know, the the creation of 5G and the you know construction of 5G towers often in um, you know, contract with the Chinese company Huawei in Europe, yep. at least, um, is is um, a manifestation of the same process that spread COVID, right? Which is the sort oh, of total econ- total economic integration of the the globe. Mm-hmm. So I'm very interested in again that particular conspiracy theory as a lens into this relationship between informational virality and biological virality. So awesome. <laughs> I think those are, those are two things. Cool. And uh, last but not least, uh, I just want to give you a, a real quick chance to uh, plug your new show because it is a new show and mm-hmm. uh, part of why I wanted to have you on. Um, so what are you doing with the, with the outsiders podcast and what can people expect from it? I'm sorry. So, outside theory. I mean, the, yeah. Right. So the blog, um, you know, it's still going. I mean, I'm trying to write like a, you know, a longish post per month at least at minimum. So mm-hmm. that's still going. Um, but the, the inspiration for the podcast was just to get people who I'm interested in, whose, whose ideas I like to come on and talk about themes related to some of what I write about on the blog. So it's, you know, so the, the two projects are, are closely linked in that way. Um, yeah. And so it's, I'm, I mean, I'm intending to get guests who, um, speak to the range of things that I described earlier that I'm interested in for the blog. Um, and yeah, so far the episodes, the first episode was with Angela Nagel to talk about the, this, I mean, issues we've sort of addressed the, the way that the, the sort of reactionary right has come to occupy this countercultural position and, you know, specifically the Capitol riot, um, as a, as a manifestation of that, as well as Q and a few other things. Um, so that was great. And that first episode got got a pretty good amount of traction. So I was happy with that. Um, then the second one, just to point to um, another re- thing that will be a recurring theme was about uh, going back to another thing we've discussed, a famous or, or sort of cult figure who was a schizophrenic um, pamphleteer who basically like typed out the and Xerox these pamphlets elaborating his theories and would like just mail them out to people and put them under windshield wipers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this was back in the 60s, 70s. And this was Francis E. Deck. Mm-hmm. So I had Gio Pinacchietti, who's a, a interesting uh, person on Twitter, artist, writer. Anyway, to talk about Deck. Um, so you know, I think you can expect more like that. It'll be it'll always be interviews. It'll often be with you know people like Angela of some repute um, with publications to their name. And then sometimes it'll be, you know, more, um, you know, people from the sort of a non-sphere or just, uh, 
you know, people with some internet following, but who might not be known beyond that or have any publications beyond their tweets or whatever. So awesome. be a mix well, of those two. I'm very excited to, to hear it and uh, listen to your new episodes and, and see what kind of guests you pull in later. Um, in yeah. particular, like, I think the, uh, the Anons, like, interviewing anons for like podcasts yeah. or or even text text inter transcript interviews uh is a really underutilized um uh mode so I i'm really excited to hear more of those anyway yeah um well thank you so much jeff for for coming on i really appreciate yeah. it and uh have a great day yeah. see you guys yeah thanks it's been fun